What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite, with just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Warning. This episode contains discussions of suicide. Listener discretion is advised. If you or a loved one is struggling with suicidal thoughts, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. When I tell my daughter about the fire, she looks at the sun. I won't tell her that my mother, her grandmother, said it. Just as when she asks how she died, I won't tell her about the gun. I'll say simply, she had a bad heart. This is the only jar I'll offer If you are reading this now, I'm sorry I lied to you. You were only seven. I didn't want you to know, before you had even fully landed on this planet, that your grandmother had chosen to leave it. I didn't want you to know that it was an option, that it was something in our blood. I didn't want you to know that at one point, when I was your age, she might have considered, with one match, to simply fold me, us, everything, back into the universe. Just as I didn't want you to know at that moment that I too had considered leaving. That's Nick Flynn, 
poet, memoirist, teacher, and author of the recent memoir, This is the Night Our House Will Catch Fire. Nick's story is like an intricate piece of origami, secrets folded into secrets, folded into secrets, until finally, over the course of a lifetime, a shape emerges. It's tough and shocking and ultimately beautiful. This is one man's journey to assemble the shards of memory into something whole and coherent, something he can live with. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets. The secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. Tell me about the landscape of your childhood. I grew up in a small town in New England, in Massachusetts, on the coast. Very beautiful. I mean, I can see that it, I knew it was beautiful then. I can still see it's beautiful, although I don't go back very much. So the ocean was a big part of it, the Atlantic Ocean and uh, the beach, and even more specifically, uh, salt marsh, that uh, sort of body, this landform that separated the ocean from the, the mainland. I spent a lot of time in these salt marshes. And another part of the landscape was the woods behind my grandmother's house. Those are sort of the main places. It was a small town. It was a small town. It didn't, you know, one street town. We called the center of town the harbor. A lot of fishing boats in it. Um, Yeah, I I spent a lot of time in the harbor, too. You just went back and forth, you know, down the one street. And your family had deep roots in this town, right? Yeah, deep roots, yeah. It's funny when you say that because I don't think of them. <laughs> Their roots is deep because we felt like like interlopers or that we didn't belong there in some way. I think as my mother broke away from her family in some way and we dropped several class notches from her being raised probably upper class down to like very working class poor, you know, by the time I came along. But yeah, I know that her father and grandfather at least grew up in the town or had roots in the town. And then my father's... Also, his you know father, grandfather. So I, I I know it goes back at least that far. You know, at least two or three generations. So tell me about the mother of your childhood. Describe her for me. What she was like. By the time she was twenty, she had two kids. I was a second child. After you know, probably six months after I was born, she left my father, which is a good thing, a necessary thing. And then she was on her own. Really, she had this wealthy father, but she didn't take any help or get any help from him. Uh, She was kind of on her own, but she stayed in the same town that she grew up in. And well, that at least the grandfather was and her mother, I think mostly just to so she'd have some child care. Like we often stayed at her mother's house at my grandmother's house because my mother got three jobs, you know, three lousy jobs, as Phil Levine would say. She worked at a, making donuts at the supermarket, and she worked waiting tables in restaurants. And eventually she got her more secure job, which was a bank teller, and that gave us health insurance. So she was young. She was very young and beautiful and, and vivacious and fun. And she had a series of boyfriends growing up. She had these you know, men that would sort of be in our life, and they'd usually be in our life for like maybe a year or so or maybe a little bit longer. And, you know, I got to know each of these guys. And the guys that she went with were, for the most part, kind of great guys. Um, gentle, for the most part. There wasn't, like, violence being brought into the house. <laughs> for the most part, I say. Although there was some, yeah. 
What was the reason behind the rift with her father, with your grandfather? Well, you know, my mother married my father or got pregnant uh, by my father. She was probably 17 and he was probably 27. And he was pretty clearly, you know, for my grandfather to see, he was maybe not the right guy. He was on his way to pretty serious alcoholism. He didn't really have a job. He just sort of drifted around. One of the things is he called himself a, a writer, which became a point of uh, contention in my family when I started to call myself a writer. It wasn't like a sign of something noble to do. It sort of meant you were disreputable. I think it was mostly that, and mostly that she sort of, and she was rebellious. When she was young, she was rebellious, I think, because the house she grew up in was, there was a lot of alcohol. There was a lot of alcoholism. Her mother and her father were both alcoholics, and even that they had money, so there wasn't the consequences that come with alcoholism, you know, certain consequences. But at a certain point, I think by the time she was like 15 or so, she was just really rebellious and kept getting kicked out of schools, out of private schools, and was just kind of a little bit wild. And I think that he, they didn't have the tools as parents to deal with a young woman and their part in what they were doing to adding to her, her struggles, you know. It's interesting, though, because she does leave your father. And so if he's the problem or sort of the last straw, then that's gone. But her relationship with them never really improves. Yeah, there was also, I think, by the time... She was with my father around the same time my grandparents got divorced. And so there was the grandmother who was Irish, the grandfather who was, you know, waspy English. He was the one who had the money. And the grandmother, who is the one who also helped raise us, she didn't have much money then once they got divorced. And so I think from the waspy side, it's a little incomprehensible to some of my friends that I grew up with. They just, there's a thing about like, not supporting the children, like they have to make it on their own, that they have to prove themselves or, you know, not even to the point of just offering her an education. You know, like I would think that you would think she's 20 years old and she has two kids, like you just step in and say, that we want to put you through college or something. Just do something that would basically set her on the right track. They just didn't do that. I, I don't, it's a little bit incomprehensible to me. My grandfather in some ways was a strange in that way. Like, I think he had a strange relationship to money. He inherited his money and he just went through it. Like, in his life, he sort of was a nominally a businessman, but he just kind of spent the money that he had. And I think he felt like he hadn't earned it. And so maybe his kids should earn it. It's really hard for me to say. Tell me a little bit about your father. Well, he was, uh, I didn't know him growing up at all. He left when I was six months old, or we left him. And the stories I heard, you just tell there was bad blood, like if you brought him up. And I began getting letters from him when I was 15 or so, 14 or 15. And he was in federal prison at that point. He'd gone to jail. But at this point, he was in federal prison for passing bad checks, robbing banks with these bad checks across state lines. So it was federal. And he began writing me letters, and the letters were you know, confusing. And I, I, my mother would give me the letters, but she would give them to resentment. Like, you know, your father's in prison. He did this thing. Um, it was sort of making a connection with you, but he's very, um, you know, if you had to diagnose him, he'd probably, you know, narcissism would probably be high on the, on the list. He was an alcoholic, but also narcissistic. And so he really just talked about himself in the letters. Like, it didn't seem like he was really that interested in me, my life. And he would just sort of go on about himself. You know, so the letters stopped. He got out of prison you know, through some certain 
strange coincidences, I knew who he was and where he was. You know, I document that in one of my earlier books. And then at a certain point, I began, after my mother died, when I was 22, I began working in a homeless shelter. And after I'd been there for three years, he showed up at the homeless shelter. At that point, he was homeless. He was well into his alcoholism. And he was homeless for about five years. And, you know, he and I were sort of wrestled in the homeless shelter for for about three years until I finally got sober. And then I, I left the shelter. And then a little while after that, we got him into housing, into subsidized housing. We'll be right back. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock 
Outlook Technology reviews the claims for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. When Nick is seven years old, his house catches fire. That's how it's talked about. The house catches fire, as if this is something that happens passively all by itself. Nick writes quite a bit about cover stories. He quotes another guest on this podcast, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, from his seminal book on trauma, The Body Keeps the Score. Trauma, by its nature, drives us to the edge of comprehension. Sooner or later, most survivors come up with what many of them call their cover story that offers some explanation for their symptoms and behaviors for public consumption. These stories, however, rarely capture the inner truth of the experience. It's enormously difficult to organize one's traumatic experiences into a coherent account, a narrative with a beginning, a middle, and an end. The truth, Nick will come to realize later, much later, is that the fire didn't just happen. His mother said it, herself, while Nick and his brother were asleep upstairs. The story of the fire is something I've been wrestling with since it happened. And it, it also, it appears in every book that I've written, actually. There's a, there's a fire, there's a, a house on fire. There's, you know, it's, it's something that is sort of, has always been hovering in my subconscious. And, and I did, you know, like Bessel van der Kolk, I mean, that really struck me, that passage from Bessel van der Kolk. He's done a lot of work with, with veterans uh, with post-traumatic stress. And I really felt the thing that had this book arise was this sort of moment of sort of really seeing the fire for what it was, in, in a way, as much as I could at that moment, which was that my mother had said it and that that was a really kind of a terrifying thing to do. And I hadn't really felt the terror of it or the, the recklessness of it or the the layers, the, the danger of that until that moment. And it's strange to say, but what compelled me to see it or what forced me to see it was that my daughter turned the same age I had been. And I sort of looked at her when she was seven. I was just like, wait, that's that's a really, that's kind of a crazy thing to do to set a house on fire with a kid in it. And it, it's a little embarrassing to say, because before that moment, before my daughter turned seven, you know, in, in the beginning, when the house got fire, the story for the family was that raccoons had knocked out hibachi over. We'd had a grill, the raccoons came, knocked the hibachi over, and the house got fire. And then several years later, I interviewed her boyfriend at the time, who was in the house the night of the fire, and he just laughed at the story of the raccoons. He said, well, you know, the raccoons didn't set your house on fire, your mother did. And that was when I was about 35. Yeah, so it was more than several years later. It was a whole lot of years later, right? So, like a lifetime later, like yeah. 30 years later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like 30 years later. So I'd lived with this story of the of the raccoons for like 30 years, and that seemed like a, a good story. Uh, it, it made sense. You know, I, I didn't think about the fire on a conscious level that much because, you know, it was, a, it was an accident. Raccoons set the house on fire. Like, we escaped. My mother got the insurance money. We got the house fixed. It was, it was kind of a good thing. But then even after I heard the story that she had set the house on fire, 
I still held on to that thing that it was a good story that, you know, because it worked out, we got the money and we got the house fixed. And, you know, my mother was broke. She was young. Our house was really not in good shape and it became a little bit better. I held on to that story until my daughter was the same age I was. And then I was like, well, wait, that's a strange thing for a parent to do. Like, I, you know, I don't know about you, but I had no idea what it was to be a parent until I became one. And then suddenly you're, you know, one day you're not a parent and the next day you are one. And then you sort of figure it out as you go along. And as she got to that age, the fire rose up again in my subconscious. It rose up. Remember what I said about origami? When he's 35, Nick goes on a pilgrimage of sorts, traveling the country to interview each of his mother's ex-boyfriends. He does this in a journalistic way and actually decides to make a documentary about it. This is his own way of giving himself permission to dig deeper, show up on the front steps of strangers, learn more about all he doesn't yet know. It's like in a dream, when there's a door in a dream, you have the choice whether to open it or leave it closed. And, you know, it just seems if just to know, to know what's beyond it, you, you open the door. And it might be something that you don't want to see or something that's somewhat terrifying. But if you don't open the door, then you're, you'll never know. So, you know, when I was 35 and I got a, a notice, a friend of mine told me that there was a organization in New York called The Kitchen, which is a performance art space. And they put out a call to artists and writers who are not video who are not filmmakers and they would train you to how to make films how to make uh, you know videos and they gave you editing and they gave you equipment and you know you met and so I, I, I submitted a proposal and the proposal I submitted was that I would go track down my mother's ex-boyfriends which the reason I did that was because it really seemed like a, it gave me the creeps it seemed like a really strange proposal to suddenly show up you know suddenly it when you're seven and now that these guys are probably 50 or something and now you're 35 and like hi do you remember me and i think it was because of that that it was such a strange proposal that they let me in i made the film and um it was a documentary film and i went and found these men these like about a dozen men all up and down the eastern seaboard uh down to florida from florida up to almost to the canadian border and you know i rented cars and flew and did it really relatively in a maybe two week or a month-long period i just gathered all these interviews and then edited it into a film i decided to distill it down just for to make it more streamlined to two questions i just asked them how they had met her and then how they found out she had died and that just sort of was enough to get them going to tell the story about what she was to them. and I, I remember them all too like they all like you know i could even recognize them when i was with them there were like these father figures in my life growing up, this rotating cast of father figures. So that's how I met, I call him Vernon in the book. His name isn't Vernon, but I call him Vernon in the book. That's how I met him and he told the story. The story being that it wasn't raccoons tipping over the hibachi. It was Nick's mother setting the house on fire to be able to collect the insurance money. I sometimes wonder, you know, when it comes to being a writer and digging into material, you know, opening the door and not knowing what's going to be on the other side of it, that sometimes it feels like the writing or the assignment or the proposal is the thing that gives you permission to go ahead and do the thing that scares you because now it's work, now it's art. But it's something that you actually really want to know, but you would never just go do on your own. It has to have a form and a shape. Are you thinking of inheritance? I'm thinking of inheritance. I'm thinking of 
a piece I wrote for The New Yorker many years ago when I was just trying to understand my father better, again, after his death, where I knew he had been married to a woman who died shortly after they got married, and I never knew anything about her, anything about... It was a subject that we never broached. And I pitched it to The New Yorker, and I got an assignment. So I had to pick up the phone. I had to get in the car. I had to go. I had to find her family. And and my heart was in my throat. I was absolutely terrified. I really wanted to know, but the only way that I could bring myself to push it, to push myself, was to feel like I had a purpose. Yeah, I mean, I think, and there's, there's terror involved in it, too. I mean, I, there were a couple of the men that I interviewed that I, that I tracked down. I had fear. Like, my mother's second husband uh, was a Vietnam vet, and he, he was just back in Vietnam at the time. And, you know, he was a he was suffering from PTSD and he was, he was a little bit scary or, you know, that's, that's sort of minimizing it. He was, he was a lot scary and he was also great. He was also a really great guy. And so when I found him, it was frightening until we actually were face to face. And then suddenly it all melted away. And I saw this, this human being. When you're 18, your then girlfriend who you refer to as the initial O is looking for a pad of paper to write something down on. And she finds a pad of paper, and on it is, in your mother's handwriting, is a suicide note. And it's written sometime earlier, and it's not something that your mother carried through with. She had not committed suicide at that time. But there's this note, and there's a really powerful moment where you go outside and you burn it. More fire. Yeah. And how does that then sort of play within you during this period of time? I mean, you've, you're in the midst of your addiction. You're drinking really heavily. Is it something that at that time stayed with you and haunted you, or did it burn up with the paper that you set fire to? You know, I think I had a, a sense at the time that, you know, I, I could tell, again, I, you, you tell yourself a story, and the story that I told myself is that when, you know, the Vietnam vet had left, had left our house, that my mother fell into a depression, and that had been probably two or three years before I found that note. And so I I didn't know how long that note, there was like a yellow legal pad had been kicking around the house and maybe just somehow surfaced. And I attributed it to that because he didn't seem in that state at that time when I was 18. And so I really was like, this is something that she went through and I'm just going to get rid of it. I'm just going to burn this. And it was like a like a ritual. And I you know, assumed in my teenage mind, my teenage cosmology, that by burning it, it somehow would send it back out into the universe and it wouldn't be real. Somehow that released the energy of it and rather than just deny it, just like exile it to a place of denial where you're just not going to think about this because it's too much to think about. And so that's what I did. And I, did I think about it? Yeah, I thought about it you know, quite a bit. Like when I, after I got that note, I was 18 and I decided not to go to college. I was just going to stay sort of closer to home to keep an eye on my mother. And so I worked for a couple of years and I ended up working for her, her boyfriend at the time, who was a gangster. I worked for those guys for about five years. Or like, but a lot of it was to keep an eye on my mother. And then I eventually did go to school. I eventually did end up admitted to UMass Amherst. And uh, it just made sense to go. It was a couple of years later. I was like 20 at that point. Your mom was, she was home and tending bar and laundering money for this gangster right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're off in college, and you're also in the throes of your own alcoholism. 
Yeah. It was early on, you know, I think you can get away with a lot. I mean, not everyone, but I was functional. I was doing well in school and reading and I would just get, I would push it at night and stuff, but I hadn't reached the, the bottom of my alcoholism. No. Yeah. And you also, it sounds like while you're in school that you really, you kind of find yourself in books and literature. And do you start to know that this is what you want to do, especially given that you've got this legacy of your father you know, being quote-unquote a writer and that not being an okay thing to be or a fake thing to be or a pretend thing to be. Yeah. I mean, it, it seemed like there was a lot of pretend things. Like the Vietnam vet, when he came home from Vietnam, he just put a sign on his car that said carpenter. He really wasn't a carpenter at that point. Like It seemed like writers were the same thing. You just sort of put a sign up and say, yeah, I'm a writer, and then just, then you just go try to do it. But I had been interested in writing, though, for probably at least since I was early teens, 10, 12 it was something that interested me that I was really circling around. And when I went to school, I already, you know, I'd been working for a couple of years and I had become an electrician. So I knew that I could make money. I knew I could sort of support myself and it allowed me the financial freedom to study poetry and to study, uh, you know, it wasn't poetry at first, it became poetry, but just, just to read. It just seemed like such a, you know, such a gift after working for a few years after high school, just to be able to live in one place and you just have to read books. It was amazing. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula. Berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. 
So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries, not so fast. Remember, your out-of-pocket costs are not covered by insurance. That can be a lot of money for your family. But how do you know you're not being overbilled? It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claims for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. Nixon is junior year of college, 21 years old, steeped in literature, but also booze, when his mother dies by suicide. I'd been at school for, I think I was finishing my junior year. I had left home, which is, you know, one of those sort of codependent nightmares. You think you're, you know, you're in charge of keeping someone alive and then you leave and then they do die. Um, so that wasn't a good thing. But she had, the gangster that she was with, he was a really sweet guy. I still know him. I'm still friends with him. But they were, you know, it sort of had morphed into cocaine had become a big part of it. And so she was doing cocaine. And he was in prison, actually. He actually got busted. He was in federal prison. He got three to five years. And he was about to get out of prison. He'd been in for, you know, usually with three to five, you serve two. And he was about to get out. And she was seeing someone else at that time. And it was right before Christmas. And I think she was doing cocaine. And she went through with it. She went through with her, her suicide, which, you know, I feel that she had always been, that had always been lingering as part of her one of her ways out from whatever she was suffering from. You know, some of the things would go back to her family. I think she, you know, I say in the book that you can see from the age that she's like six to seven or something, that something happened. Like it looks like her face just changes and she becomes harder. And, you know, she was always incredibly beautiful, but you could see there was like a look like the world is much darker than I imagined. So I don't know what that is. You know, I'm not sure what that is that happened, but we can guess. And, uh, I think it followed her through. I mean, you could see that she had, even some of the boyfriends I talked to had said that she had actually attempted suicide even, you know, when I was very young or even when she was carrying me. I mean, there's all these, it was not the first time and then this time she succeeded. But it wasn't something she talked about. It wasn't like when we were, when I was a kid, it wasn't like, that's why the letter, that's why I could burn the letter and feel that it was like somehow releasing. Because it wasn't, she wasn't like, she was very fun to be around. She was very loving. She was very, uh, you know, vivacious and fun and uh so it wasn't like she was like for the most part like expressing suicidal intent to anyone it was really something she kept to herself it was it was a secret the long wake of his mother's suicide follows nick through his 20s and into rock bottom alcoholism so often when there's trauma there's also addiction the two states of being go together hand in glove It's excruciating to feel the feelings, and here is a way to numb them. Nick quotes the great British psychoanalyst D.W. Winnicott, who writes, 
It's a joy to be hidden, but a disaster not to be found. Nick needed to stay hidden for a good long while. He finally gets sober, and in many respects, he is found by recovery, and eventually by marriage and fatherhood. But over the years, trauma, that tricky, shape-shifting state of being, takes many forms, including a long affair that begins when his daughter is two. Because trauma and secrecy also go together, hand in glove. My relationship to sobriety just came at a necessary time. I think I started to feel at around the same age that my mother had been, you know, if you have any astrology beliefs or anything, the sort of Saturn return, the late 20s, 27 or so, where, and then you go for another 27 years. And that's when there's a whole, you know, creation destruction happens. So you have to sort of rethink your entire life or redo it. So around 27, when my father showed up at the shelter, I wrestled with that for a couple of years. My drinking just increased and then I quit. I don't want to make it sound easy that I quit. It was, you know, it was a long process of quitting drugs and alcohol. You know, it was actually the, to say the obvious, but or to say things that you always hear, but it was the thing that saved me. I can't imagine what my life would be if I had not quit drinking and doing drugs. I certainly wouldn't have written probably anything. I was trying to be a writer all through my 20s, but I really couldn't write anything coherent which I feel very lucky about also, because that's the reason I went to therapy. And the therapist is the one who told me to get sober, because I was just, I knew I could write something, but I just couldn't quite get the clarity to do it. So there was that. And then the thing about going to therapy and getting sober is suddenly there's a certain clarity. You know, it's a slow building clarity. But it, it does, whatever trauma you have suddenly begins to rise up a little bit more. And it, it does with PTSD type stuff, which probably escaping from a burning house and, uh, you know, your mother committing suicide, you know, probably could definitely trigger a PTSD reaction, even though, you know, I might not have been used that language at the time, but it lodges in your brain, you know, from what I read about neuroscience, it lodges in your brain in a different place, like trauma does, it's sort of always active. It's always sort of hypervigilant and sort of waiting for this trauma to, to happen again. And it's very hard because it doesn't go into the deeper long-term memory just sort of stays in like the uh in this other part of the brain I'm amygdala yeah yeah the, the fight flight or freeze part of the brain yeah the idea of like hiding that was so important it was so important to my life as an addict i was one of those addicts that like really i thought the best thing the most clever thing was like to be fucked up and uh, i don't know if you could swear on this it's fine <laughs> And to yet to have no one know, you know, you sort of put on dark glasses, you just sort of go and you're like, no one knows you are. It's like you're, so you have two lives. It's like a very dual existence. You know, although when I quit, when I got sober and quit, pretty much everyone I knew said, oh, we knew you were fucked up all the time. You know, I wasn't really fooling anyone. There was so much, I think, from my childhood that was like hidden, like where my mother came from, what her childhood was like, what she was holding inside with the you know, with her relationship, her grip on life, when she started dating the gangster and what she was going on. I mean, I knew, you know, gangsters only do a few things. I mean, I guess it was drugs because, you know, either it's guns, drugs, or prostitutes, I guess. So they have a limited palette of things they do. So I guess drugs. We didn't talk about it. We didn't, like, it seemed like you had to keep things sort of in this very sort of miasma where you could deny things and you could sort of have other lives that sort of happening outside of it. So 
that's what I grew up with. I really grew up with that. That's what slowly, very, very slowly, and then I, I can return to that. So I can return to that double life very easily、uh, if I'm not vigilant. I can sort of that can seem like the the best place to be still. You know, maybe not today. I think this book was part of me trying to drag that into the light too, and trying to say like, yeah, this, there's this part of me that like really is comfortable with just closing a hotel room door, and you know, being alone in there or being with a, a lover that I probably shouldn't be with. That feels to me like familiar in this way. That seems to me like the real definition of of love, maybe. Well, yeah, and it's like home. It's like that's all we know. All we know is what we got. Way back then, <laughs> that's a good. That's a good. That could that could be a bumper sticker. <laughs> all we know, all, all we know is what we got. <laughs> so, you're a writer. You're a teacher. You have this full professional life. You're sober. You fall in love with the woman who becomes your wife. You have a daughter, and when your daughter's two, you begin an affair that lasts for a whole bunch of years. Yeah, off and on for five years. Yeah,、mm-hmm. yeah. When my daughter turned two, I began this affair, and you know, part of it, it had to do with the the person I had the affair with, who was a lovely person, who is a lovely person, but also probably a person who's comfortable with having a double life, or at least was at that point. It happened also with a traumatic moment in my life. It was right at the moment when they began filming my first book. They began making it into a film, and I was on set every day. And the day that,、um, and I knew this was coming because I'd read this I, the part of you know writing the scripts. And there was a day where Julianne Moore, who plays my mother in it, would reenact my mother's suicide. And being on set that day, like it's not like again, it's like almost like going and tracking down your mother's ex-boyfriends and asking them questions, and which it's it's a strange thing to be. And even the director was like, "You don't have to be here today." But I, again, I was like, "Well, where else would I be?" Like it. I'll always wonder what this was if I don't stay here, and so I, I stayed through that. But I think it did some,、uh, it re-stimulated or reactivated that trauma in me. And one of the ways this woman, we had been friends for a while, you know, for a year or so, and、uh, we became lovers, like right around then. So, and then it was off and on for the next、uh, several years, next five years. I mean, it makes so much emotional sense to me that. Being on the set, watching that reenactment, and somehow needing to—like, where else would you be? As you said, like, what is the nature of that trigger? Like, what what would you call it? Is it like a "fuck it, I'm going to do what I want"? Is it self <laughs> is it self destruction? Is it I've been through so much? This is, you know, because in a way, like when you're describing the reenactment, it's a little bit like. You know, when your daughter turns seven, having the thought, "Wait a minute, that was really, really not a good story. That was not okay." You know,、mm-hmm. it, it's like,、mm-hmm. I mean, and you, obviously you knew that your mother's suicide wasn't okay, but somehow it's now being literally played out by an Academy Award-winning actress, like in front of your eyes. I just wonder what you would say about like what that was that then triggered the beginning of this. Long affair. It's really hard to categorize because it's you know like most of my life you know I would say is mundane in a way or at least like comprehensible like you know everyone struggles with trying to figure out who their parents are and like people get lost at various points in their lives and you know my parents got lost at various points and 
their consequences were maybe more intense than some other people's, but it's it's within the realm of comprehension. But you know, somehow, you know, being on a set while you're seeing this amazing actor saying lines that you've actually, you know, helped to craft that are based on things that your mother said, there was no precedent for it. There's not nothing I could sort of look back on and say like, oh yeah, this is I know what to do with this. Because I really didn't. It was really like sort of like you're in like a a very strange dream that just doesn't end because then you know it it really doesn't end because then for the next year you're editing that scene you know you're in the editing room with the with the director and the editor you're you're working on that scene so you're seeing it over and over then you go into the premiere and you're seeing it again Mm -hmm. and then you're it keeps rising up in a way that like memory does too but memory sort of changes you know memory is more like a play where every performance is a little bit different whereas this is like you're I mean, it's different because you bring something different to it every time, but you're really seeing that that moment and, and remembering that moment. You know, but it occurs to me, this was utterly surreal and singular experience. It wasn't like you could call one of your friends and been like, you know, so so when, when you've had that situation, how did you feel? You're so solitary within that, and it's also playing out over and over and over again. I hadn't thought about that, but that... You know, that reminds me of another line of Bessel van der Kolk's where he he says, um, it's the nature of trauma that it doesn't allow a story to be told. It doesn't allow us to hold on to stories. So again and again, it's why we repeat so much. It's why we go back to either the cover story or the real story and as a way of, I'm going to try to tell the story again so that I can hold on to it because it keeps on slipping through our fingers. But there you are, and you're actually seeing the same scene played over and over and over again, honed and perfected. Yeah, and I'm not even sure if, like, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want to argue with Bessel van der because, uh, you know, we created a story with the film. I mean, there was a, I wrote a book, so those are, they, they have beginning, middle, and end, but, you know, the moment of trauma, I think, is like what really gets sort of, you know, you snap awake at, mm-hmm. even though it's embedded in a story. The moment of trauma sort of always sort of like brings you back to like uh, that very moment. Whatever it was, was lost. So this relationship plays out over the, uh, off and on over a period of five years in trips and travel and motels and talking on the phone while your daughter is like, you know, swinging nearby on a playground. And in uh, Texas, you know, you know down where, where I teach. And after five years, you go to therapy. Back to therapy. Back to therapy, <laughs> right? Different, yeah. different therapist. I'm different assuming. Therapy, yeah. And this therapist tells you that you have the ethics of a drowning man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you don't go near a drowning man, right? If you try to save a drowning man, he'll probably pull you under. He's just trying to stay alive. So take us to the moment where your wife asks you. If you're having an affair and she's asked you before and you've said no, but this time you say yes after these five years. And what is that moment? Yeah, the moment I revealed, you know, to my wife that I was having an affair was it was right around Christmas, which my mother had committed suicide right around Christmas. And so it's always a it's a historically a difficult time of year for me. But that fall I had I had started to go through the sense that I talked about before about realizing that it was a very reckless thing my mother did setting the house on fire with us inside maybe even worse than reckless 
and that's why I wrestled with that in the book, like what was going on in her head. You can also have many, you can have some very dark thoughts in your head and you can have some that are less thought, like maybe, maybe we'll all be saved or maybe some people will die. So that was hitting me and it was feeling like, um, you know, I'd call it some kind of a breakdown, a psychic breakdown. And I'd been going through the fall and my wife knew that and she knew that it was about, partially about the revelation, my own inner revelations about my mother and the fire. But it was also like, you know, I was also considering leaving the family too. I was considering on a metaphoric level, burning down the house that I had created, the home I created with my family. It wasn't making sense. Like what I was considering doing didn't really make sense in a way, in a larger sense. Like, is that really what I wanted or said, or was I just trying to go, was I trying to run away? Was I trying to hide more? Was I trying to like get away from the pain? So therapy really helped me. I got into a therapist and he sort of recognized, uh, you know, what I was going through and told me that I, I had the ethics of a drowning man with what I was struggling with. And yeah, he's, he's a, he's a Jungian therapist, um, which is, was really helpful also because he would really, would really go into like dreams and into the subconscious and sort of get to see these things, pull, pull it out. So that was, that was it. So I came clean and then, you know, likely getting sober, you know, it takes a little while for it to stick. And, uh, here we are like five, five or six years later. Toward the, end of your book, there's a really moving passage where you essentially address it to your daughter. It's a really arresting and interesting moment because, you know, those of us who have children who write have some tucked away, you know, very far tucked away awareness that our children are probably going to read these words someday, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and we can't think about it while we're writing or it would <laughs> completely stop us, yet it's there. And I mean, I actually think of it in my own life as a hedge against secrecy. Secrecy, when you are a writer who is a parent, is actually really not so possible, ultimately. And the way I think of it in my own life, it really keeps me honest. I mean, I, if my son wants to, he can go read, you know, some really difficult stuff about, you know, what his mother was like as a very young woman, his age. So you address your daughter, a future version of her reading this someday. And also, I was struck by, you had made a decision, at least to this point, to not tell her how your mother had died. You told her that she had a bad heart. And then your daughter sees the title of a poem of yours, and she learns how your mother died by seeing the title of one of your poems, which is, On the anniversary of my mother's suicide, my daughter and I take the A train to the Museum of Natural History. Yeah, and that was like, you know, in the writing of the book, that's what happens when it takes five years to write a book. In the beginning, she didn't know. And at this point, she doesn't know until she listens to this podcast that my mother, her grandmother had set fire to our house. Uh, She knows about the fire, but she doesn't know about that. It felt like too much. She knew about my father being homeless, being a homeless alcoholic. Mostly because she saw, you know, we live in New York, we, we travel, we see homeless people. And it just, and she, she got to meet my father also before he died when she was very young. It just seemed important for her to know, to know that, to, like, to give her empathy. Like, this is not far from our lives. These people are not, each one is related to someone. There's, they have, you know, they have children, they have parents, they have, you know, they're connected. They're not just these, these satellites floating, drifting in space. It seemed important for her to know that. But somehow the idea of her, my grandmother or her grandmother committing suicide, it felt like too much for her at the age. And then she, she started, I, I was 
I forget. I think I had a, uh, I guess it was on a piece of paper. She just like, she doesn't always read my poems, but it was just sitting there. I think it was just sitting on the top and uh, she read it. And I actually burst into tears. I, I didn't, I didn't want her to you know, find out like that, but it was really good though. Like she just really sort of got it. And I, I have this sense that our children sort of know everything about us anyway. Like there's really nothing that they don't know. I don't think there's anything in this book that she'd be like, oh, that's, that's shocking. I mean, you know, probably because I've, been working on not being so you know having a double life and so she gets to see moments of struggle and working things out and i think that's important i think that's important for you know kids to see that one can struggle and one can you know suffer and yet can come out of it and the next day or even the next minute can be laughing about something here's nick reading one last passage from his extraordinary book one which his daughter may hold in her hands one day and not have to wonder who her father really is. And that is what I meant when I said at the start that this story is tough and ultimately beautiful. A thousand and one times I've told this story. Why? Because it happened. Because I escaped. Because it involves fire and firemen and sirens. Sometimes still... This story starts with just me, barefoot in the next door neighbor's yard, looking back at the house we've just tumbled out of. All I can do now is watch as it burns. Phantasmagoria, I need to freeze, make sense of the story of being six and running through a burning house. I need to contain it like a firefly in a jar. If I don't contain it, I don't know if I can move away from it. And if I can't move away from it, I don't know if I'll ever believe that I made it out of it in one piece. Yet here I am, I stand before you, intact, whole, holy. Everything that lives is holy. Family Secrets is an iHeartMedia production. Dylan Fagan is the supervising producer, and Bethann Macaluso is the executive producer. We'd also like to give a special thanks to Tyler Klang and Tristan McNeil. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, leave us a voicemail, and your story could appear on an upcoming episode. Our number is 1-888-SECRET-0. That's secret and then the number zero. You can also find us on Instagram at Danny Writer and Facebook at facebook.com slash familysecretspod and Twitter at famsecretspod. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
tired of endless diets and weight loss struggles? It's time to say goodbye to frustration and hello to results. Introducing Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD, your breakthrough solution to fight stubborn body fat. Imagine burning fat, balancing glucose levels, and regulating metabolism in just 12 weeks. This unique two-in-one product combines the power of two clinically studied ingredients in one revolutionary formula, berberine, which targets abdominal fat, and OEA, which curbs your appetite. With just two capsules a day, Smart Metabolic Burn by BrainMD can kickstart your metabolism, fight stubborn body fat, especially that pesky abdominal fat, and support your weight management journey. Right now, save over 30% on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com, the lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from BrainMD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.